2: You sat back over the last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case. Can I tell you a secret? That you been, killing. What happened? Those kids. Our kids. Why? My, my whole brain's much of this pieces. That's when it all started. With panic.
0: Hello, and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanny Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson.
1: And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson.
0: Each week, we break down the latest episode of True Detective, including all the theories and all the twists. This time, we will be discussing Season 3, Episode 7, The Final Country, written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Daniel Sackheim. And also, later on in the episode, we'll have a conversation with director Daniel Sackheim. Uh, Richard, do you have any thoughts about the meaning of the episode title, The Final Country?
1: Um, I've been very bad about deciphering <laughs> these things unless <laughs> it's like bonk you over the head obvious. So um, no, I cho- I chose not to engage with it. But I'm sure do you have do you have some sort of um, theory or or, or 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 knowledge about what that title is is uh, re- referencing?
0: I have indeed Googled the phrase, the final country. Um, I first, first, I just want to say that, uh, when I opened the episode and I was kind of like looking elsewhere out of the corner of my eye, I was like, is this called the final countdown? Like, why is that? <laughs> um, you know, and then I, and then my next thought was like Star Trek and space, the final frontier and all this sort of stuff. But as it turns out, I don't know if this is the reference, but it'd be actually really fun if Nick because a lot if it were. There is a 2016 mystery novel called The Final Country by an author, James Crumley. And apparently, like, this, he's been writing these books, these P.I. Milo, Milo Dragovich series for decades. I've never read any of them. But, um, the point of the one that he wrote in 2016 is it's like, after a long time, this P.I. is back on the case, like, you know, we've been, we've been missing him. Here he is. He's, uh, 60 years old and drunk and detecting. Um, and so I thought that maybe it was a reference to like, you know, here are these two old men back on the case, the final country. It'd be really fun if that's, if that's what he's referring, so. I mean, that seems
1: likely, doesn't it? It's pretty, it it's pretty. I
0: just. I just don't know this book series very well, so I genuinely don't know if it's like a, like a very, very not well known one that I'm, detective fiction's not really my oeuvre, so I don't know how well it's known, but um I hope that that's what Nick is referring to. And then we got a, a couple of emails too before we, we dive into the episode, which is, first we got from from Amy correcting, uh, some pronunciation on my behalf. Um, she said, finally had a chance to chug through six episodes of True Detective this weekend and was listening to your Still Watching podcast. When you said, and I pronounced it Ardwine or whatever, it caught my attention. Have they pronounced his last name on the show or have we only seen it written? I live in Lake Charles where Pizzolatto grew up and that is a really common surname, but it's pronounced Ardwan rhymes with swan. When I was growing up in Arkansas, I never knew a single Arduan, but down here in Louisiana, they're everywhere, anywhere, just a weird little thing. So Mike Ardwan is probably the name of... The kid, the little kid who had a crush on Julie, who is now doing landscaping suspiciously at the um like nun run halfway home that we saw in episode six. Mm-hmm. So Arduan, some a little Louisiana flavor, once again from Nick Pizzolato. <clears throat> I also got an email about another thing that I was wrong about. Um this is a theme. Um Mike wrote in Mike wrote in to tell me um that indeed I do not know what I'm talking about when I talk about betting odds. Um, and everything that I said about betting odds about who done it has been reversed. So strike it, reverse it. Um, and sort of at the, at the top of the, you know, the odds are in favor of a Hoyt employee having done this. And, and Tom and Lori were the least suspected of all the, of all the
1: suspects. So So, uh, we are being sued by Lori for. indicating that she was a murderer and a kidnapper
0: <laughs> all of all of her um poultry science money is now going into this uh case that she's putting up against us so anyway um and then zach wrote in with a really compelling theory that actually i'm going to talk about a little bit later in the episode and then we did get one response to my call for anagrams only one Uh and you know i i asked our listeners to write in with their best anagrams for uh children should laugh Or the children should laugh. And with the weird
1: spelling with
0: S H U D. And Bart wrote in these options. The rushed and chill hug. Fun. Hushed child hung later. Ominous. Dark. Hug as the held child run. So. Um, I, I, thank you, Bart, so much, A, for being the only one to do this, B, for turning in these great anagrams. I'm not convinced that we have our answer yet. So, if you guys want to keep sending those anagrams in, um, be, be like Bart, send an anagram to, uh, still watching pod at gmail.com. So, there we are. So, for this episode, uh, in terms of the chronological breakdown, we, we're actually dealing with four time periods. So I'm going to do this slightly out of order than we usually do. We're going to start with this one errant time period that we've never seen before. And then we're actually going to end where the episode ends, because it ends in 90, but I think it's like such a strong thing that I'm just going to hold that final two scenes basically till the very end of the episode. But otherwise, we will do this chronologically. I hope that's not confusing. We are starting in the year 2000-something, I don't know (laughs) exactly. with Wayne dropping Becca, you know, a, an 18 year old Becca off at college is what it seems like to me. Um, I really liked the scene, even though I don't feel like we get a lot of answers. I guess we get the answer that Wayne and Becca still had a good relationship when she was an 18 year old. It didn't like go South until later. What did you think of this, of this little glimpse?
1: Yeah, I mean I feel like I I I am I'm curious how significant Becca is because right now her sort of absence has been used as a kind of you know metaphor or similarity to the missing kids, you know, and and I uh, and I think that like uh you know maybe maybe that's all she exists as, but I feel like introducing her in sort of incorporeal form, you know, in and 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 using a new timeline to do it. Like obviously we've seen her as a little girl, but like, I I don't know, maybe there's going to be some sort of kind of cap with, with her returning at the, like to kind of give the whole season a, a, an emotional sort of closure. Um, and it feels like that's, you no, know, that's Pizzolato introducing that now, maybe.
0: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good call. I hadn't thought of it that way. And in this episode, we get, um, old man Roland telling Henry, like, someone needs to stay with Wayne and look after him. And like, you know, and, and not to der- derail Becca's, songwriting career in LA, her singer-songwriter career in LA, but maybe it will wind up that Becca, like, comes to stay with him or something like that. I think what we learn in this episode is Wayne makes a decision to do something in 1990 that forever sort of fractures his family. Um, so the full ramifications of that, um, you know, I guess don't hit the Becca Wayne relationship until after the year 2000. So, um, <laughs> there we go. All right. So 1980. It's very short, but this is where I'm going to go with the theory that was emailed to us. So Roland offers Tom help in Tom's driveway. You know, Tom says, I ain't your orphan detective. We, you know, at this point in the episode, we already know that, that Tom has died in 1990. Scoots, Scoots gone. He's dead. This is our last, like, or maybe not our last, but possibly our last scene with him. Um, and I don't know if you had seen this. This is actually a very popular theory that's floating around that. Perhaps the reason we got this episode, uh, that episode six twist about Tom's sexuality is that actually Roland and Tom's connection is more than just sort of, um, a, a paternalistic looking after a lost lamb sort of thing, but maybe more romantic in nature. Um, I don't, you know, in our our friend who wrote in, Zach, has like a very long detailed outline about it. I honestly don't know how much I buy this, but some of the arguments that I've heard is like, you know, why do you think Roland's a confirmed bachelor and why could he never commit to Pretty Lori, and like all this sort of stuff? And why does he care so much that Tom is dead? Um, I, I genuinely don't know if I feel like that adds anything to this, um, but I'm certainly not a opposed to it. I just don't know where there's room for this to pay off in the final episode. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that if they were gonna introduce that in in any sort of actual way like it should have happened earlier. you know I think I mentioned last week and uh, like I don't really love like sexuality as twist. Yeah, you know, I think that's a little bit cheap. I mean, if you do it, you can maybe do it well. You know, like at the end of the "Call Me Maybe" maybe video, or something. <laughs> that
0: is but that like, is the only good gay twist in all yeah, of all
1: Yeah, but we've also only invested at that point three minutes, so it's <laughs> not like we've been sitting with it for seven hours. And um, so I don't know. We'll see. I I think that like I I, I you know I I love representation in television, but like. I'd like it from people who are going to handle it better than I kind of trust Nick Pizzolatto to. And I think he's done a lot of great things with this season and with this show. But like, this is one thing where I'm just like, eh, like I could do without it.
0: Another aspect of this theory is that, you know, perhaps Roland is being blackmailed by his sexuality into complying either with the attorney general or with Hoyt or something like that. And that's possible. That like, that's one of the reasons why he plays ball. Um, I don't think that that is why I think that has to do with his own sort of ambition and personality. And I also think we find out in this episode that if someone were to blackmail him, at least from 1990 onwards, they had something else much more damning to work with. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really buy it, but I do. Um, I like their connection, um, I mean, maybe it's a way for, for viewers to try to understand the connection better, because at this point I still don't really fully understand it myself. Like, why Roland is so preoccupied with Tom. Um, though I did like this driveway scene. I mean, it, it, the, uh, what I will say about this driveway scene is the premise of it seemed really contrived. Like, Roland just happened to, like, Come, come up to the driveway as Tom's leaving town. I didn't really understand the premise of it, but the performance in it I thought was quite good. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for me also, it's just like, I appreciate that this season has been like, yeah, if you're a detective and you're working with a family about their missing child slash their dead son, like, like you might become close to them or, or, or at least f- form some sort of like, irre- you know, like intense bond. And I kind of liked the show, sort of, is considering that. And I also think that, like, no knock on the theorizers, certainly, but like, men can be friends, right, <laughs> like, right. in a sort of intense and emotional mm-hmm. way. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're having a secret relationship. I know that we've, you know, there's more reason to theorize about that than just beyond them being friends because they introduce all the Tom stuff. But like, I don't know. I think it would be a little bit cheap to do introduce it at this point, but we'll see.
0: I kind of agree. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Minardi, and this week on the Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after.
2: Listen to the Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
0: Then the only other 1980 scene we get is Wayne doing dishes. This is after, you know, everything's been put, pinned on Woodard. Wayne is doing dishes in Amelia's house. And Amelia, this is like the genesis of her writing her book. She's like, maybe I want to write an article. Maybe I want to write a book. I don't know. Um Wayne sees it first. like, it seems at first like he's going to be resistant to it. And then he's like, no, you should do it. No one else is going to do it. Basically, I'm not satisfied with how this wound up. So if you want to keep digging into it, like, I support that. So, um,
1: which is interesting because was, we've been watching him be resentful of the book for the whole season right. and then th- getting the scene where it's like, wait, but you were the kind of the one who like, I mean, she clearly had the idea in her head, but like he encouraged her, you know, and, and he encouraged her not just because he wanted to support his, his soon to be wife or whatever, but because he genuinely thought the book had a utility that he seems to now think otherwise of.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially that's, that's very, I think that's very common. (laughs) It's like a partner will say, let's do this or you should do this. And then later forget that they were the one to encourage you to do it in the first place. So um, this seems about right to me. Um, And I, and I do like this, this sort of sweet domesticity beginning of their relationship, him insisting on doing the dishes. She's like, I'm glad you're not looking for a mother, like all this kind of stuff. I, I like all of this between them. So, and Amelia saying, I mean, I know that we thought Amelia was maybe an evil killer <laughs> earlier in the season, but Amelia is saying like, I feel like I have a voice. I have something to say, um, you know, is a, is a nicer version of, you know, whatever Lena Dunham kicked off s- series of girls with, you know, she's like, I am a voice of my generation. I have something oh, to boy. say about this. So there you go. Um, all right. So then let's hop over to the nineties where I would say the bulk of this episode takes place. Um, or actually, I guess it's kind of split between the nineties and two thousand fifteen. But anyway, Scoot's dead. Tom's dead. This is it. R.I.P. Tom. Uh What did you? You send me a text yeah. message while you're watching that just said like Scoot exclamation mark. What did you? What did you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I obviously I knew that he was dead in the two thousand fifteen because they they say that. We didn't really know the details of it. I kind of thought they were just going to let him fade into the past, but but like. Uh, Eliza is really serious when she says a lot of people connected to this are dead and not only are they dead but they're dead of in very mysterious ways so I get, and I Tom is part of that which I did not see coming. um I guess I probably should have um but yeah i'm I'm glad also that like they didn't linger too much on like Roland or um or at least Wayne be, being like, well, he killed himself like I'm glad that they immediately were like or Wayne was immediately like no, no that's that does not check out. He wouldn't yeah. type that you know.
0: Yeah. He wouldn't type that. He wasn't the type to be like, "Can't wait to see Lucy again."
1: <laughs> right.
0: Um, yeah, we get a suicide note. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Off to see my wife and son. That seems suspect. Um, and you know, Amelia tells Wayne about the man she saw at her reading. Um, and she says, "I think he's the reason Julie ran away." And then um I did want to mention that Nick Pizzolato in some interview, I forget where, um he called Amelia the third detective of this season. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of like that. I like that in a way that like I think them having it was three detectives in season 2 didn't really work. It all felt kind of scattered. So I like this sort of sideways way of introducing someone um once again even though we thought she was the murderer um as as a detective you know, as, as a woman involved with agency in the story and in the case, um, but not as like an exact detective sort of having to, like, not as a detective having to deal with like the sexism of the 1980s or like whatever it is. She's just like doing her job and being very good at it. So, you know.
1: Yeah. Though I hope it does not encourage, the, you know, Sarah Koenig imitators out there, true crime <laughs> of the world, because to like go out there and try to solve murders because <laughs> this is just a television show we've had enough of that
0: especially not with uh, your kids in the car in the middle of the night or something like that
1: um well, yeah yikes.
0: <laughs> yikes um all right and so then yeah we get this emotional scene between Ray- wayne and roland this 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 is the incident i mean we're gonna see something even more terrible like upsetting that happens to wayne and roland later in this episode but like this seems to be the incident that breaks roland for one reason or another, for whatever your theory is to why, like, he starts hard drinking immediately here when Tom is dead. And, um,
1: he's, just which might taken, lend more your credo to the idea that there was more going on.
0: Right. But, um, you know, he's just taken responsibility for this death on himself. So, yeah. um, Another thing that I, I really like that we get in this episode that doesn't lend itself to us going through it chronologically is in 2015, Eliza in her like pushy little documentary director way or whatever is like, didn't it ever occur to you that maybe Tom didn't kill himself? And Wayne goes, nope. And then, you know, it cuts immediately to him going like, no way Tom killed himself. So we know <laughs> how much he's lying to her yeah. all the time about the way in which he investigated this case. Um, and, and which I think makes sense. We'll get to why in the end, but I just, that was like one of those good back and forth in time sort of cuts there. Um, you know, and, and so Roland and Wayne are fighting here and Roland is lashing out the same, you know, you, you said something really beautiful, I think, on Twitter about how you think, um, you know, this season is about 30 years in the life of a friendship between two men. And as much as there is like a love relationship between Wayne and Amelia, that is a foundational relationship in his life and us seeing it in the eighties and the nineties is interesting to sort of watch it progress. The con, the constant relationship is the one between Roland and Wayne. And like, here we see a fight that is like Wayne's fights with Amelia, where it's like Roland knows exactly how to hurt Wayne. And it's to say, why do you think I brought you on this case? It's to help you. Like, it's so condescending to him and he just, and he gets right in and digs right into, to Wayne like that. Um, I really loved it. So,
1: yeah. And I think it's kind of an interesting examination of like, you know, certain heterosexual men, having trouble being friends without there being a project you know like that they're sort of like yeah. they're not just hanging out they're like doing something and so that they keep returning to this thing as a kind of re-upping of their friendship or a renewal of their friendship or whatever Um and you know you I think back to that great scene on the porch in 2015 when you know when, when Wayne is convincing Roland to you know get back on the case and he's like you want to watch a ball game whatever I have all these interesting ways of wasting time like but they don't really know how to do that together um, and I think that might be kind of true of a lot of, a lot of men.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that their relationship fell off between 80 and 90 when they didn't have crimes to work on together. Right. This is their like hunt. This is them on the hunt together, you know, this yeah. their hunting trip. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really, I really like that perspective. Um, we get, uh, Amelia going back to the sort of, Bombed out town, uh, where this all happened, Shupik Lane, to visit Lucy's friend, uh, who we've seen in the background of a lot of episodes. And, um, you know, you see the devastation of the town. You see, like, ho- like hogs lying sort of like f- neglected on the butcher line. You see, like, it's just like, it's like the rapture came for this Arkansas town. Um, and then you get this, you know, we, we get this Halloween photo which feels helpful because it's got ghosts and the ghosts that we've been looking for. And we later find out that Amelia has circled the hands of the ghosts. One's white, one's black. Oh my God, these are the people we've been looking for. But more importantly, is this character of Lucy's friend and what she represents, um, which is like slightly overblown and gothic and still really works for me uh, in the context of the show. What did you think?
1: Of yeah. That? I mean, I texted you about that too. I think yeah. I like, just saying like, I just love the thoroughness of this season. Like that, that, that people are not forgotten, you know, that like a Hoyt tote bag found in episode one, like his now means of the world to the whole season that like that Lucy's friend gets this like nice scene where she gets, You know, she becomes a person, even though, even though it's just one scene, you really like kind of see who she might be. And also it talks, you know, sort of about the, the the town. And I love the, the whole thing where she's, you know, Amelia says, do you ever think about moving into town? And she says, somebody's got to stay. Somebody's got to remember. Like, I just think that like it's evocative and it, you know, obviously she's, um, fulfilling a purpose in terms of the narrative by giving her the photo, fo- uh, Amelia, the photo, but just in general, in terms of the atmosphere, I love a mystery that like is able to surround itself with texture. And like, you know, I think about silence of the lambs and all the interesting little details in those that don't really have anything to do with the actual crime being solved, but just add that much more to the world. And I think this scene did that beautifully.
0: Yeah. Like moths or whatever it is. Um, Yeah, I agree with that. And the other thing that adds texture to the, you know, she's doing, a handcraft with Amelia, right? She's making like a wreath of some kind for Tom out of, you know, what looks like branches. Um, and this idea that I hadn't thought too much about uh, in terms of like these old fashioned handcrafts, the corn husk dolls, the wreaths, um feel like a very like, you know, southern middle America kind of thing. It's like this is our heritage. This is what we do when someone dies, we make them this wreath, you know, and let's do this together, these two women working together on it. I just thought that there was something really kind of beautiful about that.
1: Yeah. Um, and you also almost wonder if she's if she's also staying because she's like, well somebody has to be here in case Julie comes back.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, all right. And speaking of wrecked out places, uh, cousin Dan's motel room is a wreck. So, you know, Wayne and Roland are like, yeah, this doesn't look right. <laughs> like cousin. So, you know, RIP cousin Dan, he's headed to the quarry as far as we know.
1: <laughs> he's off to the quarry. <laughs> he's,
0: off- <laughs> he's off to the quarry. Um, and then, you know, Wayne, Wayne looks like he's quitting. He's leaving the office. He's got his, his box packed. And this one runs up with the Nevada phone records that he requested. And this is where we get some, like, I love, like, good old-fashioned grunt work detecting. And it reminded me so much of that sequence in Spotlight, the film Spotlight, where they're just, like, laboriously going over ledgers with, a, like, a ruler and highlighting things. And yeah. um it that doesn't sound like it would be dynamic cinema, but it's, like, one of those sequences in Spotlight that always really stuck with me because all the painstaking, meticulous, boring work it took for them to break that story that I would have no patience for. You know, like, these are the things that you forget to admire about you know, a detective ca- like cracking a case, or a reporter breaking a story is like all these little granular things that they have to, you know, pay attention to that that I don't have the brain for. So
1: yeah, it reminded me also of like the Pelican Brief when they like yes go to get the files in the bank safe and then you know like I don't know like it's just like all yeah all the kind of like um just Rich- the paperworky process that yeah. was really ex- exciting.
0: I I rewatched The Firm recently because uh, I don't know why I was on a I think it was like a Holly Hunter reason I was like oh I'll watch Holly Hunter's great. Turn in the firm. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, like really boring looking photocopying happening in the firm, which I don't think we do anymore. We would probably have like a word search or something like that in a digital file or something. So I don't know. Um, all right. So Amelia's trying to call Wayne. He's too busy looking at phone records. She gets no answer. So she takes the kids with her while she goes to Lucy's old, old bar and she, she gets some info there. Once again, this is just like what you said with, with, with Lucy's old friend in the photograph. Like, yes, Amelia learned something. She meal, she learned that cousin Dan has a connection to the black man with one eye. Um, you know, she learned that. But I think more importantly is this, you know, I had this dread that she was going to lose the kids, like Wayne lost the kids in Walmart. And it's just sort of, it's this, um, theme going through the season of like, Why was that scene of him losing Becca in the Walmart? It's just sort of like lost, like children, children are precarious. Children, when you bring them out in the world, it's precarious. You could lose them at any moment. And that it happens to Amelia and it happens to Wayne without them permanently losing their kids in that way, um, I think is, is an interesting little mirroring thing that they
1: do. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. And then I, I love this next sequence, which is just, um, Wayne trying, Wayne, like in 2015, in 1990, Wayne tries to get Roland to do something with him. And he tells him about Harris, he tells him that there are phone records, that Lucy was calling the Hoyt Corporation, um, that there's a flight that Harris James took out to Vegas, so it seems like that Harris, you know, killed Tom, killed Cousin Dan, killed Lucy, um. Which is
1: information about the, the, sorry, the travel information he got, he got by pretending to be Roland.
0: Yes, he impersonated the Roland in yeah. NFO. Yeah, exactly. Um and you know, so so Wayne is all fired up and he and Roland's like no, we let it go. And Wayne's like no, we do it like we we ask him hard like we used to. Um which all this episode really gratifies me that that earlier scene of them beating up that guy in the barn was not for nothing because I like really thought that was for nothing and now I understand that it was setting up to this but um And then I love this that Wayne tries to manipulate Roland with like thoughts of Tom and, and then (laughs) Roland goes, I'm not simple. Like, you don't have to keep hammering that. I get it. I get what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you're not slick at all. Um, the i think i mentioned this when i ran down all those like name etymology things last week on the podcast but um, the guy that they beat up in the barn in episode i think it was 2 um his last name was lagrange which means barn uh so uh, they go back to the to the barn um to the beating barn to the beating barn the old beaten barn uh it, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, um, but what do you think of, you know, so they pull Harris over, they have to like pull him out of the car, um, you know, they take him to the barn, they're, they're interrogating him. Uh, he says, I can't breathe. He says they've like broken his ribs. He's wheezing. He says, I can't breathe. They uncuff him. He makes to escape and they both shoot him. Um, you know, and throughout all of this, you know, I had, I had my weird questions. I was like, I was like, oh, is it accidental? Like, did they kick him in the ribs? And that's how he's going to die. Cause we felt pretty certain that A, he was going to die and B, they were going to be responsible. Um, but, but what was interesting to me was watching this and thinking about, how much conversation there has been over the past couple years of the, the optics of white cops taking like, you know, black men and women out of their cars and these like unjust stops. And then the whole like use of the phrase, I can't breathe and all of that. I was just like, obviously we're not sympathizing with Harris. Obviously I'm not like saying these are the same things, but I was like, I feel like it's using some of this, um iconography or image or at least phrasing that we are that we have an emotion around um as part of this other thing does that make any sense or am i
1: yeah no it does i mean i i definitely like that i think it particularly the traffic stop sequence you know i think like i remember seeing get out and you know when did we talk about this last week what at the end when 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 the police when the police car shows up at the end like my audience my entire audience gasped cuz everyone we know what that means you know i mean obviously i know that a lot, a lot less acutely than people of color know it but like you know it's just it, that that we're, so, we're we're very much steeped in that sort of iconography imagery um uh, that it, it, you can't help but sort of see it Elsewhere, you know, like in this scene or, and, and it's an, it's an inversion of it. Like not to make a sympathize with Harris certainly, but, um, yeah, I definitely think that that sort of imagery comes to bear here.
0: I think it just made me more tense, even more tense than I otherwise yeah. would have been, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to see our heroes, even if they are morally on the right side of what's going, or somewhat morally on the right side of what's going on here, um, Using these tactics that we, at least, you know, those of us who are, you know, dialed into this kind of thing like that we associate with villains, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to watch. Um, one thing I want to say about the barn interrogation is that um, they make this guess about pedophilia, which we'll get into a little later in this episode. And Harris, from my view, basically says, like, you're way off the mark there. He says, you're up shit creek. Uh, You know, my feeling, and once again, we'll talk about the pedophilia thing more, is that that is all a red herring. Um, And I think, you know, Harris's reaction to them guessing about that is um, confirmation of that. So as far as I'm (laughs) concerned.
1: Yeah, because that seemed genuine. Yes. That seemed to be him kind of like letting the the, the mask drop and he was like, yeah. oh, you guys are totally, like, totally have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Other, you know? You know, in other
0: uh, in other cases when he's like, I've got kids. I would never. I'm like, fuck you. You killed so many people. When he's like, oh, you guys don't know, even know what you're doing. Um, yeah. yeah. It seemed real.
1: And I think that, like, um, you know, the, the, the fact that the real life thing, the Franklin scandal in Nebraska that turned out to be this kind of elaborate hoax that this show is kind of referencing, that that turned out to be fake, I feel like despite a lot of people including their, I mean, there were like state congressional hearings about it and stuff like that. Like a lot of smart people like Eliza took it seriously and maybe it was all just kind of a lie. I know so people, I got, think that-
0: people got really mad at me when I wrote about it on VF and just said it was a lie. And they're like, how do you know? You know? Uh So, you know, people still believe that that is a true thing. And I don't want to like dismiss, I'm sure there are like shadowy conspiracies linked to pedophilia and sex trafficking. I'm sure that is absolutely a thing. There's so much evil that goes on in the world. I just don't think that that's a particular brand of evil we're talking about in this um, story. And then the last thing I want to talk about in 1990, before we hop over to 2015, is this: um the aftermath. They bury Harris. They have this fight, seemingly maybe the last fight of their relationship until they meet again in 2015, where... Which I think Stephen Dorff does a great job with, which is, you know, they're fighting. He uses the word uppity and then declines to use the, the N word, but says, I just want you to know I'm thinking it. And once again, we've talked throughout about how much, you know, they had to go back through and, and lace in the, the racial tensions, um, because originally the character of, of Wayne was not, um, written as black until Marshall Ali lobbied to play the role. And so the fact that this is sort of added in, but that, it, but it's a, a really good, like, breaking point, line crossing moment in a friendship, especially given the conversation um, that Tom and Roland had around the N word, like earlier this season. And so the fact that, like, Roland is now, like, w- when even a good man, when pushed, will go to this, like, really shitty place, um, with, you know, and that's the, the truth of being a black man in 1990 in Arkansas and also, you know, probably a black man or a black woman or any, or any person of color now is that that's always a danger that someone could drop that, even someone you're close to uh, could drop that on.
1: You, so. Yeah. And I guess the question is, is it something that is used because it will, will, will do maximum impact? Does it reveal, does it betray an, a sort of subconscious ideology? Is there a difference, frankly, you know, like I'm not racist. I said a racist thing and it's like, well, but you know, that's not from, from some angles. That's just semantics, you know? Um, so i think it's an interesting scene it was disappointing because i really like Roland, but like you know but i i I think that maybe unfortunately that is just kind of all too realistic uh of of certain you know certainly a lot of white people in in this country and others like that that when push comes to shove that is the you know quickest thing that they go to you know um. Oh. So anyway, it's it was a well done scene. I just was like, oh, Roland.
0: Yeah, and we're probably as two way people, Ill, like ill equipped to really fully talk about this. So I'll be interested to hear what um other people think about this scene. I will just reveal, like, um, you know, my own stupidity around the word uppity. I did not know until. Barack Obama became president and people referred to Michelle Obama as uppity that that was a racially coded word. Um, I thought it just, you could use it to try to apply to anyone acting sort of quote unquote above their station. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people gently and not so gently corrected me that that is, that it is in and of itself a racially coded word, which, you know, probably everyone listening to this podcast knows, but I didn't know until, you know, the Obamas. So there you go. Um, all right. So we are in 2015. And we've already mentioned that Eliza sort of suggested foul play around Tom. Uh she brings up the fact that Amelia was working on a sequel book and you know Wayne's like she says she decided not to write about it. That's something that I think we will find out exactly why in the finale that she decided not to write her sequel. Um old man Wayne, old man Roland shows up um and Eliza suggests a larger conspiracy and a cover up and to that Wayne goes. Wayne gets really nervous, and he's like, "What makes you think that? What are you, what, what, what are you saying? Like, what, what evidence do you have for that?" Um, and then Eliza plays a video of of Attorney General Kent overturning the Woodard conviction, pinning it all on Tom. So it's just like the same thing that happened in the 1980s, happened in 1990, except they pinned it on Tom this time. Uh, and so. And then, and then she mentions the black man with one eye going to look for Julie, called him Watts, and then called him a procurer. And this is where Eliza gets into the pedophilia stuff. She brings up Rust, uh, Cole and Marty Hart from the season one of True Detective. She mentions the pedophile ring. And here, like Harris, my sense of, um, Wayne's reaction here is like, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Like, oh, you're on the pedophilia thing? That's that's your big thing that you're saving? You don't know what you're talking about. So what did you think of, of all of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this episode did a really good job of bringing a lot of disparate threads together because, you know, it's the penultimate episode. You got to kind of really get, you got to get work toward the denouement. You know, we've kind of already maybe gotten to the climax in terms of killing Harris and all that. Um, But it didn't do it in a way that felt kind of like stilted and, ex, you know, over expository, like it felt very natural because like, sure, there w- there of course would be a momentum to Eliza's line of questioning. And that's how, that's how interviewers and interrogators work. You know, they kind of establish a base and then piece by piece, then they get to their file or, or a prosecutor even would, you know, would do that. Um So, and I thought, I don't know. I thought it was satisfying. I think the Rust and Marty thing <laughs> is like, I guess I sort of knew that this was all in a world together, but like hadn't really, I didn't think it was going to be that explicit. So I think that's kind of fun. I mean, it's a little hokey, but like, it's kind of great at the same time.
0: Well, I think it's a perfect sort of, if you're going to do a red herring, um because what's funny, you know, the, um, the guys over at the ringer are doing a, a true detective sort of after show, not to promote someone else's show. But like, they're doing a true detective after show. And I haven't really been checking it out because I don't like to get sort of infected by other people's, like, line of thinking that, that, you know, that much. I don't want to regurgitate what they've been saying or something like that. Um, but I did check out what they had to say this week because they were, they were looking into the Mark, the, the, the Mike, um, Ardwan connection and all of that. But they're, they're hardcore into the pedophilia theory. That is what they're into. They found like a blue spiral in the old Purcell house. They're like, they think Mike is a procurer who goes around and like takes kids and stuff like that. And that is just like so far off of what I think, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm not, um, I, what I will say is like, I think those guys like, um, Detailed connections in a way that maybe I don't latch onto. And so maybe they're right. And I'm just going to look like an idiot. But that being said, I, um, I think throwing, uh, Rust and Marty in here is the perfect way to juice up a red herring for like the Reddit community. Cause they're going to like, I feel like that brand of fan is going to get really excited about the idea of it's all connected. And so, okay, let's dig back into season one and what were all the hints there that we can connect to season three. And that's just like throwing off the scent which is why I think so much of these revelations are pulled forward we're not saving the big revelations for the final episode um we'll get into this a little bit more when I talk about what I sort of want the, from the finale but like we know Hoyt did it that you know finding the pink room wasn't the finale revelation it was two episodes off the finale so the revelation is going to be something else and I don't think it's going to be like who done it based I think it's going to be us. Figuring out more about Wayne as a character than the the whys and wherefores of the case. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: I think that. Yeah, I think that if anything, a, a big revelation, so to speak, of the finale will be what it's not. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think that he this this season has done a really good job of of of, of serving as kind of weirdly kind of like digression red herringy style things, but then sort of somehow loop back to the actual story. So they're not exactly completely unrelated, but like, but they, they sort of distract us from what's actually the sort of the through line, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's, there's going to be more of that to come. Um, and, you know, I think that Eliza, her theories are not exactly unfounded. Certainly. No, but no. Like, yeah. But they're, but like, you know, I don't know. And I, just, I think it's also kind of fun to think of her as the kind of avatar of the sort of online theorists, you know, yeah, for the show. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And um, I, I've talked before about sort of the Bill Clinton connection. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that, like, one of the – most prevalent conspiracy theories about the Clintons is like this whole pizza gate scandal, which once again involves like sex trafficking and pedophilia. It's so stupid in my opinion, but um maybe I'm
1: wrong. And, and a scandal from years ago in terms of whitewater where there was a suicide that they think was a murder, yes. right? Or oh, you know, conspiracy theorists. Yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah. I
0: forgot about, yeah. Uh, the connection to Tom. Very good point. Um Okay. So, we have Roland talking to Henry and he says, I told your daddy he shouldn't do this. It could be dangerous. And he mentions the gun. Um, my theory right now about the gun is that we thought from the beginning it was for suicide. Now I think it's not. Now I think it's, um, you know, Wayne. My unified theory about all of all this is that whatever happens at the end of 90, the rest of Wayne's life is about protecting his family from a threat. Right? Which is the Hoyt threat. Yeah. And so yeah. the gun is, I think, more defense than it is suicide or suicide could be a way of trying to defend his family, but it's not like, I'm so sad. I'll just kill myself, though he does say like, maybe I don't want to live with, uh, without Amelia, but like, I wonder if the gun is more for defense or offense. We see him tuck it into the back of his uh, pants when he runs out in the street after the sedan in this episode. So, you know, I, I don't know that it's. Suicide, just because the episode, the season's trying so hard to make us think it's about suicide, do you know?
1: The, the physicality of when he runs yes. outside with the baseball bat is <sighs> like, he, Marshall Ellie is doing such an amazing job of playing the older guy. Like it's, like just that kind of like lopey, kind of like wide legged sort of thing. Like it's just perfectly done. He's
0: like bow legged and pigeon toed and like, once it, again, his yeah. knees look like they hurt so badly. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. Um, We get a little bit more information before we get to that is that, you know, Eliza says that the man with the dead eye, his last name was, or his name was Watts. And then Roland and Wayne go to talk to like a a woman who used to work for Hoyt. She tell, like this, the Hoyt's daughter stuff all becomes like more evident in this episode. A daughter named Isabel, she became super troubled after her husband and daughter died in a car crash they think that maybe Harris James was the highway patrolman who helped cover up, um, like either the, the, because then she goes out later and drives her car into like the center divide of something. Right. So they think Harris James covered up her car crash to protect the family, and that's how he first ingratiated himself with the family. There's a loyal servant named Mr. June, who we think is the, you know, black man with the dead eye, um, who would do anything for Miss Isabel and follow her around. She, she had the whole basement level of Hoyt Manor was hers, so where the pink room is. And this woman who worked for them was like, we weren't allowed to go down there. So, like, I mean, it's just, it, it all feels very clear to me. <laughs> in in all this information
1: we learn here, you know. Uh, yeah, and and you're you're you have a better memory than I do. Isabel, is she dead? Do we know where her what her status is?
0: In 2015 we don't know. And I actually don't know if we know in 1990. I mean, basically like Yeah. I think what happened is that her her husband and her daughter died in 77, and then she went, you know, a little bananas about that. Um, understandably, and was basically like, um, what do you call her? Um, Mrs. Rochester, <laughs> you know?
1: Oh, like, like wandering the yeah, attic. Yeah,
0: the woman in the attic, except she's in the basement, yeah. you know? And I think, you know, we're meant to believe that that's her and, um, Mr. June Watts, Junius, whatever you want to call him, under the ghost costume. So, like, she would only leave the manor if she put a, like, full sheet over herself, basically. Like, I think she just wasn't seen by anyone, um, after that all happened, so. Um, so yeah, so, and, and in that moment, you know, Wayne confuses a young woman for Becca, which is like a really, and Roland just sort of handles it really well, and then, you know, they have like a reconciliation and apology, sort of, I'm sorry, I pushed you, you know, basically to, to murder a man, and basically also taking responsibility and saying it wasn't really your fault, we did that together, you know, sort of thing, so. Um, all right, so they they do a little like you know bucket list old man uh, police work with this with this sedan that's been sitting outside. We get confirmation I think that the sedan is real. a lot of uh fans have been wondering, viewers have been wondering if if that sedan was real um but then you know it's hard to know what's real and what's wrong, not because. You know, they're, they're celebrating their bit of detective work and then Roland disappears and Wayne's alone on the road and it's all dark and the, this amazing shot of just darkness all around him and then the fire in the distance. And then what happens after that? What did you think of all of this part of it?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, when the show gets a little artier, I don't, I don't really mind because it's not, it's not overdone. I think that the whole thing of like, 2015 Wayne looking over the fence and then sort of 1990 Wayne turning around like, like the kind of past and present are can sense each other, you know, sort of almost interstellar style. Like, I, I really like that. I think it, I think, you know, they haven't done it too much, which is good, yeah. but like when they do it, it's very effective. Yeah. Like, cause you almost kind of are like, is that sort of how memory works in a way? Like, yeah. like is, is time a flat circle? Like, I don't, I don't know, like all this kind of like interesting metaphysical stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the flattening of time, the whole, like, uh, we were just doing this. No, we, you know, when, when Wayne has these lapses of memory and he's like, Oh, we were just doing this or I was just talking to you about this. And Roland's like, Nobody, you weren't, you know, and so uh, as much of that, you know, short-term memory lapse in, in 2015 is a thing, like lapsing all the way back to 90 is also a thing. And so, yeah, it's, and this evocative sort of, I don't know why it evokes Vietnam for me. I mean, obviously Wayne's history in Vietnam, but this, this fire in the distance, in the black distance, sort of very apocalypse now to me. And then like we see Wayne stripped down to his boxer standing over a barrel burning his clothes. That once again feels very just like 1970s war movie <laughs> to me. Um,
1: yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: And then Amelia, Amelia comes out and she's like, we need to talk. And basically like, so Amelia's like, I feel like we've reached a crisis point in our relationship. We need to have the talk about how we keep distracting ourselves with this case and neglecting our relationship. And Wayne's like, I agree, but also P.S. Footnote, I have killed a man. So I've got a lot of other things on my mind. And then we get the Hoyt phone call. Um This is where we said we, we should, we didn't say this on the podcast, but I did write about this on the website. Um, HBO confirmed that Michael, you know, and if you watched the episode already, you saw his name in the credits maybe, but Michael Rooker is playing Hoyt. We get Hoyt's first name. It's Edward. His daughter's first name is Isabel. We hadn't had those before this episode. And I will just say that I know that because it's been really annoying to write about them without being able to Mm. use their first names. So Edward Hoyt, his daughter, Isabel Hoyt. Um, Edward Hoyt played by Michael Rooker and he sort of summons wayne to the car and and he says you know he intimates that he knows about harris james and you know basically threatens wayne's family uh if wayne doesn't come out and you know and, and threatens wayne himself says i'll go to the prosecutor with what i know if wayne doesn't come out and get in the car with him and he yeah and then and then the way that the camera treats this walk we've seen so much happen in Wayne's life in terms of like, he he's killed this man in a barn or, you know, these, or, or when he found Will's body, like these, these turning points in his life. But this just feels like the moment there is like, before he gets in that car and after he comes out of that car. And my feeling is that he's going to be two different men entirely on either side of that
1: moment. It's very mystic river. Yes. You know? Yeah. The kid getting in the car. Yeah. Um, I think I also really appreciate that this that this show is taking that murder seriously. You know, it's not like oh, like we got to scramble to cover this up and then move on. Like not, you know, they they actually feel the weight of it. And I think that that really harkens back to a very early scene in the show um, when they're sitting by the fire outside talking about hunting. And about, like, and he's like, "Don't, you know, don't, <clears throat> don't shoot that, whatever, you know, fox or whatever." And and the kind of weight of actually killing something. I mean, we know that Wayne has killed people before, but uh, we also know it was in the context of war, which you know, an unjust one certainly, but you know, sort of sanctioned by the government uh, by law, I guess. Um, and so, but so I'm, you know, but to to have this one death really resonate in such a way, even though he was a bad guy, um, I'm, I'm glad that the show is taking its due consideration with that. I think. It's important.
0: And I feel like it did the same with when he had to kill Woodard in eighty, like what that did to him and then what this has done to him. These are these are the things that have turned the young man that we meet at the beginning into the old man that we meet at the end, and it's just it's really amazing. Okay, so I wanna I wanna talk to you quickly about a couple questions we have going into the finale, but first I want to go to our interview with episode director Daniel Sakai. To be joined on the podcast this week by the very talented director Daniel Sackheim, who directed four out of the eight episodes of True Detective. This season, he directed this week's episode, Episode 7, as well as the finale, Episode 8. Just a little housekeeping note before we get started. When we spoke, Daniel had a little bit of a sore throat. He's feeling a little under the weather. Uh, so you might hear some raspiness on his side of the conversation. But that did not stop me from asking all of your questions and my questions. So please do enjoy this conversation with director Daniel Sackheim. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Hey, Joanna, how are you? Sorry for the
2: scratchy voice.
0: Did you lose your voice shouting all your true detective theories from the rooftops?
2: How did you know?
0: Okay, before we get into theories, I wanted to ask you about probably the most stunning visual of the episode, which is the moment when old man Wayne goes from being with Roland in the middle of the street to being completely alone in the dark, and then following a bit of light and seeing his younger self burning the clothing. Can you talk to us about this this moment in the episode?
2: Um, well, you know, there was um, a lot of discussion early on about time and how we would play with time, the uh, metaphysical aspects of the show and Wayne's dementia and how those two things sort of uh, intersected or collided with each other, I guess, depending on how you look at it. But I think what's so uh, special about that particular sequence is it's the first time really that Wayne And uh, old Wayne and a younger version of himself sort of exist in the same time frame, Um, that you're, I like, firmly in his head. And that he sort of moved to this kind of new level where it's, you don't see so much sort of fear on on old Wayne's face. Because what we hopefully come to realize by this point is that these recollections, these reflections, I mean, in other words, these events that we see that they are in effect uh, recollections of Old Man Wayne, and I at least it, it's my supposition that um, this entire story uh, of the season is eff- effectively um, a reflection on the past from his point of view as as his mind and as his memory is starting to go that these pieces are and are start to slowly evaporating. He's sort of seeing first it's uh, 1990 and then 1980 and, and, and onward.
0: How reliable is his memory in these sequences? Um,
2: well, I guess that's a really good question, right? Because Wayne is effectively, um, potentially an unreliable narrator in the piece. He is, in other words, as his memory is slipping away, we're not entirely sure what's true and what's not. And I I think actually that's one of the mysteries, one of the appeals of the season is is that perhaps inconsistencies in the story, are they product of the events that have unfolded and the, you know, the changes that you go through in any real crime story? Or is it from the perspective that Wayne no, is no longer a reliable source or a reliable, um, uh, uh, a reliable witness of these events? So, it, you know, I guess it's, uh, I guess at this point, it's sort of the, uh, up to the audience to, to make that determination.
0: You know, much was made in season one when Carrie Fukunaga directed the entire season of True Detective, but you directed half of this season for out of the eight episodes. How much of an ownership do you feel when you take on that big a chunk of a season?
2: In this case, uh, Jeremy Saulier, who had directed the first two episodes, had laid down a bit of a visual template for the look of this season. I guess where... Um, my imprimatur, for lack of a better way of putting it, came in was to a large extent dealing with a visual language for the metaphysical um, and Wayne's memory, which doesn't play out uh, as, to as great an extent in episodes one or two as it does in later episodes. Um, and I had a a, a pretty much of a free hand from uh, Nick to sort of interpret that as I saw fit
0: given that free hand how would, how would you describe your take on the metaphysical aspect of this season
2: we talked a little bit about the sequence outside on the street and um i mean i guess i would take references from uh, bertolucci uh, all the way up to um uh, you know, directors like uh, Fincher. Uh, you know, there are other sequences, uh, one in, in episode eight, for example, where all, all I probably can say about it at this point is that it's another um, moment where where Wayne uh, is in his office mm-hmm. and he perceives uh, something that uh, I think it's clear to the audience isn't actually there. It isn't real. Um, and Um, I wanted to be able to sort of elevate it visually from the things that had come before. There's a couple sequences, one that I had done with Amelia in episode three, and and a sequence that Nick had done, I think it's in episode four, where he's visited, I guess, or haunted by these images of Viet Cong from his time in Vietnam. Um, And so I took a slightly more theatrical approach something that might be more reminiscent of something you would see on uh, in a Broadway production. Um, but uh, it was uh, it's always about sort of finding a, a, a surprise way in.
0: For lack of a better word, I feel like we've been calling those visitations that we've been seeing throughout the season Amelia or the Viet Cong soldiers, we've been calling them ghosts, but they're not really ghosts in the supernatural sense.
2: Well, uh, I mean, it's it's, it's part of the side of, of Wayne's brain that can't really connect to the, to the other rational side of his brain, right? It's, it, I mean, at least in, in episode eight, I can say that it is the device that was employed was, was what, whatever vestige there is of the, of the detective coming out vis-a-vis another entity that helps him to solve this case or, or not solve the case, but take the next step towards what he perceives to be the way to solve the case. Let me put it that way. So, um, you know, so, so I guess I would say that it's kind of a schism within his own brain. Um, that was the idea. And... Um, And that schism is presented in the form of someone else.
0: Michael Rooker makes his voice debut in this episode as Hoyt, and I presume we'll see him in the flesh in the finale. I got to say, I love a huge fan of Michael Rooker. He is not at all who I had in mind when I was thinking about Hoyt. This is a little bit of surprise casting. We didn't know it was coming. What about Rooker makes him like the perfect choice to play this chicken magnet of
2: Arkansas? He is, I think, inspired. I think I can say that he's inspired by Don Tyson. Yeah, right. Who's I guess Fuss. I guess you would call him the Chicken Magnet, or yeah. I don't know how you <laughs> refer to him, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, and I, I actually it was much to my surprise. You know, Michael is someone I've worked with several times in the past. He's a good friend, and when his name actually came up, I said to Nick, you know, I. It's not really who I imagine for someone who's this, this captain of industry. Right. Who, who, Which was my perception of it, honestly, out of probably ignorance as much as anything else. And he said, I, I want to show you this clip of Don Tyson, oh, okay. which he found on YouTube. And so, you know, that's really what he was. He was a guy who came to work every day in like this, um, uh, almost like this, uh, um, Khaki jumpsuit um, and uh, and uh, you know trucker hat and he was a guy who was as much on the chicken line as he wasn't in, in the corporate office. Um, he was a, I mean, he was in a certain sense a self-made man and. Um, um, you know, very kind of the strong alpha character, but not, you know, not particularly uh, sophisticated or eloquent or you know what what you might picture as 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 what at least we perceive Hoyt to be from the beginning of the series. Right, so, right. In, in actuality, he's he's really a really pretty good fit, and I will tell you that he's pretty magnificent in um, in episode eight as that character.
0: I'm so, I'm so excited. You know, the, the, just without knowing anything, without having said anything, just the idea of Michael Rooker and Mahershal Ali sort of squaring off, uh, has me so excited for the finale. Um, I wanted to, to follow that Don Tyson thread. Um, you know, if, if some of this season is inspired by what was actually going on with the powers that be in Arkansas around that time, then are we meant to take Gerald Kent as any kind of Bill Clinton-esque figure?
2: Wow. Um, I, I don't think that was the intention. Okay. I never actually asked that question, and you could be right, but it never occurred to me that he was. I mean, I think he uh, is a, you know, sort of the stand-in archetype for any kind of truly ambitious bureaucrat with, uh, uh, you know, uh, desires for, you know, a uh, higher office. Right. Um. But I, I don't know that he was. I, I don't know that he was based on any one particular character or even an amalgam of characters in Arkansas. Arkansas was in large part chosen as a, as the um, location for this story based on the fact that Nick uh, Pizzolatto went to uh, graduate school there, mm-hmm. and it was a place that was very sort of near and dear in his heart, and he had always wanted to come back and do a story there.
0: Okay, now I need you to talk to me about this incredible, transformative performance that Marshall Ellie is giving and what it was like being around that on the
2: set. Well, I guess I could tell you a couple things about it. I, you know, uh, for the moment I saw ca- camera tests, makeup tests, uh, you know, he would come to set with, or rather, he would do those tests with, you know, sort of the body language and the walk and the stoop. Um, you know, all these kind of little mannerisms that were sort of baked in. Uh, so I assume that he had given a lot of thought to this character. And I know that he loved playing old Wayne. Um, from a character standpoint, it was a lot of wear and tear on him because it was four and a half hours of makeup every morning. Um, so if you can well imagine, uh, you know, coming in at five in the morning uh, to be ready for shooting at 9.30... Uh, So you could only do that so many days in a row. But um, I would also say to you that when I would be working with him on those days and I would be sitting across from him talking about a scene or making a suggestion for adjustment in the scene, that he stayed in that persona to a large degree for most of that time, the body language, so on and so forth. And I really felt like I was talking to a 75-year-old man. I just really did. And it was, it was a weird and freaky experience because then, you know, the next day he would show up looking, you know, his handsome 35-year-old self. And it's just weird because, I mean, it, it's so utterly convincing to agree that I've never seen it before.
0: I wanted to talk to you about the sequence at the end of this episode that feels so monumental in the way it's shot. It feels so like such a big pivot point is coming for Wayne as soon as he gets into that car. Can you tell me about the way that you decided to frame that particular closing shot?
2: I think there are two things. One, uh, again, you know, I really believe that uh, the key to success as much as anyone can count on anything is kind of this rigorous uh, adherence to point of view because you want to feel like you're living the scene through the character's eyes. In this case, it was kind of a two-hander. It was... You were seeing it through um, uh, Amelia's eyes as well as uh, Wayne's. Um, and, And then I think the second thing is actually... The rule of less is more. I mean, the the less that you see, the more you can make the audience lean in and sort of look for something. You know, there's a shot where the door, the car door opens, and we can't see inside the car. And I remember one of the great influences in my career, uh, you know, my early, uh, not even career, my early uh, uh, love of film and film language was watching Rosemary's baby <clears throat> and there's a scene in Rosemary's baby. It's pretty famous where Ruth Gordon is on the phone in a room and she's being watched yeah. by, uh, I want to say it's by Mia Farrow and she, half of Ruth Gordon is hidden behind the, the doorway, uh, the door jam. And, the audience famously sort of leans to their right as if to try to peer around. And and I think that's a, a great lesson in storytelling, that it, it's not sometimes what you show, but what you don't show that creates a great sense of intrigue or suspense. So I guess that would be the model. Um, you know, certainly... The idea for the final shot was I, I wanted to be strictly in Amelia's head, seeing it through Amelia's eyes, as opposed to any other point of view, because I felt like that's what we're going to care about. I mean, that's where we get the greatest sense of sort of a, a emotional resonance versus, you know, just a shot of cars pulling away. Um, that's probably the over-articulated and overly film schooly version of an answer. No, but I have not That's it. the one I got. It's
0: my it's my favorite kind of answer, honestly. Um, I wanted to ask you so you know True Detective has come under fire in previous years for its depiction of women female characters and i know that both Nick Pizzolatto and Carmen Ejogo the actress have talked about how they wanted to make sure Amelia was this multifaceted character with a lot of layers and and this there was this overall desire to do better by the women this season on True Detective. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you see Amelia's function being um, in the context of the larger story.
2: The role that she plays, that, that Amelia plays, is crucial in terms of, well, d- delivering, in, in, in part, kind of delivering information um doing you know sort of doing the uh, rolling up their sleeves pounding the payment detective work that she does and you know a lot of that comes through you know the the quest to write the book where what i think is actually interesting about that in not not only in terms of the information using it as an information device but the fact that the stress that it places on the relationship between Wayne and Amelia. And exploring those things, exploring those, I think, really uh, relevant topics that were are as relevant now as they were back then about what is a woman's place, what is a woman's place in marriage. Um, and she certainly is, I, I'm not sure that I would, you know, say that it's intended to be a feminist uh, manifesto by any means but i mean i think she is sort of she certainly is a feminist and she is a, you know a strong and independent woman who has a really a significant part in in unearthing i really appreciate the character and the intelligence of that character and the strength of that character and i actually really appreciate as a viewer an audience that it caused so much friction between those two people um, and yeah. and i think that you will find that all of that it will lead in, in episode 8 to a, a major revelation between these two people and and resolve sort of this ongoing tension that's you know manifested itself over the course of something like you know <clears throat> 10 years so it's a it's a it's a big piece of the puzzle or it's a big piece of the sort of a a character equation. I'm not so sure that it's of the, of a of the mystery puzzle.
0: The other question I would ask you is th- this connection between Scoot McNary's character, Tom and, and Stephen Dorff's character, Roland um, has, has like, has the audience, Really interested in what what is the source of their connection, and um, you know I I love the work that Sevendorff is doing. I love the work that Scoot's doing as well, or, or has done maybe if this is the last we see of him. But um, what's your understanding of Roland and Tom's connection in the show?
2: Wow, you know that's a good one. It's not one I've really given a lot of thought to. Interestingly, that Tom that his that the connection to Tom is a is a is a Port by which we view Roland's humanity, because as a character, because it's not something that we get a chance to see a lot. He's a little bit of a you know cynical guy by nature, um, and as the story progresses, he becomes more and more cynical. And um, I think that's his love affair, and I don't mean a sexual love affair. I think. I think that uh, I'm really actually just coming up with this theory now, so it, uh, <laughs> it holds necessarily no water. but as I do, I, I actually think that that Roland was never able to successfully, uh, as I think you discovered in the end of season of episode five, was never able to sort of uh, have a successful long-term relationship with a woman and and I think that that, in essence, is what the role that Tom fills. And again, not in any way is it a romantic relationship, but I, I think that it is someone that he makes a connection with. And they have a, str- a strong sense of affection for each other and and feel that, you know, I Roland, I believe in... in things that we as uh, the audience have not been privileged to, that Roland has come, has has been by his side, has sort of, you know, helped him navigate this very, very difficult road after losing, you know, uh, a a rocky relationship with his wife and and losing both of his children. Um, And so I I think it's that. I think that's the place it takes.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to hear you describe it, you know, because there is a, there is this sort of like, uh, <laughs> conspiracy fan theory because, you know, we got this revelation about Tom's sexuality that perhaps Roland and Tom had like this secret love affair. That's, that's a popular theory that never held any water with me. And, and to hear you describe it as his sort of non-sexual platonic love <laughs> affair. You know, makes me go a little easier on those fan theorists because I'm like, okay, well, if this is if this is if if this is like kind of the love of his life, not uh, a sexual love, but you know, a love of his life, you know,
2: right? I I feel I I feel pretty comfortable saying that 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 element, whatever, the conjecture that's out there doesn't hold any water. There's yeah, sure. it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, I think they're just they have a close relationship and that continues to play out through the rest of the season.
0: Well, on that debunking note, Daniel Sackheim, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate all your insights.
2: Uh, It's really a pleasure. I hope that uh, this is uh, intelligible enough for the audience to follow it.
0: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It's great. Um, But please have some lozenges or some tea and, and rest
2: up. I will. Thank you so much.
0: All right. So, Richard, um, I have a few questions headed into the finale. Do you have any questions headed into the finale?
2: Well,
1: <clears throat> let me just lay out the theory as far as I know it right now. And you can tell me how off I am or if I'm forgetting something. <clears throat> so right now, we kind of think that uh, Julie Purcell was procured for Isabel to kind of replace her daughter. right? Or... Is, uh, uh, Isabel and Mr. June, June were out trying to find, you know, kids or whatever. Not, not necessarily to kidnap, but certainly not to kill. But that then there was an accident, Will died, and they took Julie. Right. Um, and so Hoyt, Edward Hoyt, is not actually this nefarious person who's like, <clears throat> you know, tr- trawling for children or whatever. He's, in some sense, is just covering up for his daughter.
0: Yeah. And there's an, there's a scenario where I could believe that like she takes, you know, he, and, and it's very clear that he was out of the country. We learned that he was left in mid October to go big game hunting and he was still out of the country. Um, when they went to like White Foods to interrogate right. um, them. So like this happened while he was gone. So I believe it happened without his knowledge. And maybe by the time he came back, it had been too long like they couldn't return Julie because yeah. you know, she would say where she had been and a boy is dead. You know what I mean? It, it Like if, if crazy Isabel Hoyt had taken Julie and Will had never died and her dad found out about it the next day, you know, Julie would have come back with some weird story about pink. Like she would have been returned. It's what I think. But I think that when Edward came back, it had been too far gone. And so then, Starts this massive cover up of like the servants aren't allowed in the basement and it's just Julie down there locked up for, I think, until close to 1990. I mean, the other, the other, um, yeah. So basically, and then Julie escapes and, and in 1990, that's why, you know, Mr. June, Junius Watts is looking for her. Um, right. you know, either to bring her back. Or to kill her or to cover. I doubt to kill her. Like, well, I bet he has, no, like, a I think c- connection to her at that point, you know?
1: He seemed concerned yeah. and sort of outraged on her behalf. So I think that there, I think there was probably some sort of actual emotional connection there. We also, <clears throat> we know that Julie had been spending time there bef- well, before the, her disappearance, right? Because right? there's uh, drawings
0: and, of the pink room that she made. Right. And stuff.
1: Yeah. And they'd been meeting in the woods to play games. Right. So, like, but the question therein is, like, we're assuming that at least Lucy knew that there was an arrangement between them, and that's why she was given a hot shot in Vegas by Harris years later um so I guess the kind of timeline of that is a little confusing to me,
0: yeah, well, I think you know? I think Lucy intended to sell like I think what happened is that um you know uh, Isabel has like this thing for Julie Purcell like places her in the woods or whatever it is. Um And then, you know, maybe Junius is like, Hey, but how about we make this a full time arrangement and we get to keep Julie and we'll give her a better life and she'll grow up a princess. She'll be, you know, a member of the Hoyt family. It'll be great. And Lucy who is, you know, and, and maybe primarily Dan are like, go for it. What they didn't say is, and also, kill Will while you're at it. You know what I mean? Like Will died by accident. And so I think that's where Lucy's like regret and remorse comes from is like she, you know, did the egregious thing of selling her daughter, but maybe she could justify it by saying for a better life, but her son died as a result of it. And the, you know, and Woodard died as a result of it. All this shit happened as a result of it. So she leaves, she goes to Vegas. And then, you know, she's so strung out at that point. I would imagine that in night. 1988, I think is when she dies she's demanding more money she's like I know what you she's trying to blackmail them and they're like oh guess what you don't do come after the right. Hoyt family so you're done bye right. you know sort
1: of right and I guess like also like the the will being so lovingly put in the I mean lovingly that's like a perverse way to put it but like you know carefully placed in a cave with his you know his eyes shut and his you know hands in prayer like that would indicate sort of a maybe mentally Unstable person trying to like undo a wrong, you know, in some Absolutely. ways. Um, yes. you know, because it, it I just, poor Will, it seems, was just collateral damage and all of
0: Absolutely. This. Trying to protect his sister. We know that, you know, Freddie Byrne says, um, Will was looking for his sister and he said they took him took her. So like maybe he, he tries to get her back, falls back, hits his head is dead. And then Julian 1990 says on that recording, we left him sleeping. You know what I mean? So like maybe she and Isabel help arrange. Will. maybe Isabel tells her he's just sleeping. It's fine. We'll just leave him sleeping here.
1: You know? So yeah, maybe they didn't even know he was dead. I mean. Maybe they thought he was just knocked unconscious. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs>
0: maybe. Um, maybe. Uh, so a few lingering questions for me. What happened with Becca? Like, what happened to fully degrade the relationship between Wayne and Becca? Um, cause it happened so much later than I would have expected. Um, what does Roland know and when did he know it? You know, um, because what I feel like we learn most emphatically from this episode is not just like the cement, like cementing the Hoyt theory and all of that, but that I think what we learned from this episode is the whole premise of this season. And you said this, I think, from the start is that the reason Wayne is agreeing to this is to find out what Eliza knows, because I think he knew he finds out everything in 1990. He knows everything. And then keeps it a secret because Hoyt, you know, threatens him. And so then, then you just get him keeping this secret. And what, this, this like stupid thing I wrote in our show notes, but like what happens to a secret keeper when they start to lose their memory? You know what I mean? That's why, that's why Roland's, I think concerned is I, I suspect that Roland knows everything too. Right. We know he certainly knows a lot from this episode. um, And he's like, Wayne's dangerous. Because we've been sitting on this for 15 years, and now he's, lo- you know, this is this is what I always say. Sorry to keep like zig- zigging and zagging. But this is what what I always say about what happened to the actress Natalie Wood on that boat so many years ago. Is mm-hmm. I'm like, at some point, Christopher Walken or Robert Wagner in their advanced years, they're going to tell us. They're not going to mean to, but we're finally going to know what happened. Do you know what I mean? Not to like make light of this terrible thing that happened, but like, that's a thing is like when you become older and especially when you have the kind of dementia that Wayne has here, like that's when you can't, you can't keep a secret like that anymore. Right.
1: I guess the question is like, what, what, what is the inciting in like, why does 2015 Wayne decide to go back into this? Do you know what I mean? Like, did something happen?
0: Well, I think like, because I like, Eliza came, Eliza was like, hey, we're doing this documentary and we have new info. And the new info she had was like, right. a pedophilia okay. ring. So, and he's like, God damn it. No, that wasn't so, it. Like, yeah. why did I get involved in this at all?
1: You know? And that's when then and he shuts down. Yeah. When he hears that, he's like, okay. And she's like, I'm disappointed in you. It's like, because he got everything he needed yeah, out of her. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, and I think, and I think you, um, I think we're also going to see Wayne, like, not only has Wayne been keeping a secret for 15 years and needs to, like, make sure it stays a secret, but I think probably we'll also see him, uh, that he will have forgot, he's forgotten some aspects of it, you know? And so he'll, like, what the revelation in 19 or 2015 is not just gonna be like, Wayne, old man Wayne solves the case, but old win old man Wayne remembers he already solved the case, you know? That's a possibility too. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, like, what happened with Amelia? Like, she was working on the sequel. She stops working on the sequel. My, my guess is that Hoyt says, uh, you need to drop this. Your wife, your nosy wife needs to drop this or I'm going to blow up your entire life, you know? And so what does that do to Wayne and Amelia's relationship? Is he honest with her or does he just, you know, in a, a way we can't understand alpha male put his foot down and say, you can't write this book. I can't tell you why. Like we don't know how honest he's going to be with her after. He gets out of the car, but the implication of her ghost visiting him earlier this season is that he wasn't honest with her, you know, that uh, someone, I forget who either, either wrote in or, or said to me somewhere that they thought maybe that conversation between Henry and Wayne in the last week's episode that we kind of wrote off as like, we didn't really understand why it was there when they were talking about infidelity and telling your wife things and stuff like that is just sort of, maybe it's more important And, and, you know, if anything, we've learned this season, things are important and they come back. So him counseling his son, like, you can't hold anything back. Maybe that's, you know, that's his regret of like, he gets out of that car after talking to Hoyt, and he just doesn't tell, let Amelia in on the pressures that they are now living under, you know, maybe, I don't know.
1: So, you said, um, earlier in this episode, um, and sorry to go long, no, no. but I'm just very curious, um, you said, uh, that you have a way you hope the finale goes. What is that? How do you, how does that play out in your sort of I- ideal version?
0: I guess I, the, my main hope for it is the, I really like Michael Rooker a lot. I'm really glad that he's been cast in this role. It's not quite, what I was thinking of when I was thinking of Hoyt. I think I was thinking of like sort of a Papio Daniel kind of figure, but, but Rooker is an even better casting because he's the, the menace is less, even less jolly. And, um, you know, the, especially that, that shot of him as a hunter, like this is a hunter, you know what I mean? And Wayne is not a hunter. Um, and so I'm hoping that this conversation with them whether in the car or in another location has the potential to be like an all-time great true detective um like a scene with great dialogue great performers doing doing great work um and what i like is that i think true detective has faltered at the end even season one which people remember very fondly i think they don't love people don't don't love the finale of season one of true detective yeah um not just the revelation of of who done it and everything but um, just how it played out. But there is a moment in the season one finale that I remember of like Rust coming out of the hospital in the wheelchair and Matthew McConaughey just like collapsing, like crying. Um, you know, with his like sad little ponytail and stuff like that. Like that is, that's, that's the juice. And so that's what I want is just almost all character stuff. Cause I think we have so many of the pieces that I just want like emotion yeah. and character you know
1: and i think i think that um i i hope that we get that too i think you know i think a lot about that scene at the very end of the first season when they're outside and he's in the wheelchair and he's looking at the stars and he base i think the last line is the lights winning
2: yeah
1: you know uh and it's and it's like a little on the nose but i think it's also really pretty and like uh, and it was such a surprising grace note for this very dark intense show that Pizzolatto was kind of like turning another you Know to another angle and being like, no, this is actually. I'm I can be kind of sentimental and like hopeful about humanity, and I feel like there's so much rich emotional stuff in this in this season, um, that I've hooked into more than I did, um, like the trials and tribulations of Marty in the first season, yeah. um, that I'm like there could be a really satisfying and moving emotional payoff if that's what he wants to do, because all the pieces are there. So I hope that you're right. And that it's more about the kind of the light is winning moments and not like more and more sort of, you know, whodunity stuff.
0: Yeah, And I think that, um, the pieces are all there. Like you mentioned this possibility of a Becca reconciliation, which would be really, that would be like a light winning sort of moment. And this idea of the healing of Wayne and Roland, you know, all of that coming together. It's like Wayne is a Wayne is a man whose life was broken fifteen years ago when he got into that car and then has been living in this sort of prison of his own making ever since. So like some freedom for him. Some emotional catharsis, some freedom, some just sort of like um not solving the case but getting his own life back, even at the end of his life, um, is what I would what I would love to see. And yeah. Um I hope, I hope the light wins. Um, all right. Anything else we want to chat about before the final episode? No,
1: I think we've chatted a lot. (laughs) We certainly just wait for the finale with everybody else. Some
0: scheduling info. We will not be have, we will not be getting the uh, screener for the finale of True Detective in advance. And it is airing on Oscar Sunday night when Richard and I will be a little busy. So our final episode of this podcast is going to come a little later. Um, then.
1: Yeah. Sorry about that. It's just, you know,
0: scheduling, um, please take up your case with our friends at hbo who scheduled the true detective finale opposite the oscars and didn't give us a screener that's fine but uh it'll just mean the podcast will be late and so hopefully it will be worth the wait we will be here. the
1: darkest winning <laughs> the
0: darkest winning <laughs> um all right until until then richard uh where can people find you
1: unfortunately i'm going to be in the beaten barn I don't want to be there, but just sometimes you gotta to go to the beaten barn. Is
0: that what we call uh, the which Vampire now sounds Oscar like?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, perfect. Yes, that's where I'll be. Um, no, of course I'll be on VF.com and Twitter at rylaws uh, until our very last episode. Joanna, where where can people find you?
0: Oh well, you'll be find me still in Arkansas making wreaths. Keeping all the photos and the memories alive.
1: (laughs) Someone's got to remember. Someone's got to remember. You're still going to be podcasting about this season months from now.
0: (laughs) Years. Years from now.
1: Yeah. Still watching
0: True Detective forever. Really still
1: watching. (laughs)
0: Uh, you can also find me at Joe wrote this. You can find us both. Yeah. VF.com. We got a lot of Oscar stuff coming up. You can listen to us on the podcast, uh, Little Gold Men, talk about all of those thoughts. I mean, it's going to be a big Mahershala Ali night is what I'm saying, uh, next Sunday, uh, with him expected to win an Oscar, his big finale, uh, all Mahershala all the time with a little side of Steven Dorf. Uh, and we will see you when we see you. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.